We as a church want to be a gospel-driven church. And so today I want to unpack a little bit what we mean when we say that. And so if you have a handout in front of you, we'll jump right in and fill in some of the blanks that are on there. I want to talk about what it means to be a gospel-driven church. The first thing you see on your handout is that gospel-driven churches declare the gospel. Sounds obvious. But it it is worth stating, it's worth thinking about what that means and dwelling on how we apply that. Gospel-driven churches declare the gospel. If we are to be a reflection of the church that Jesus came to establish on the church and if Jesus came to seek and to save the lost and that is our goal, one of the most important tasks that we are uh, given is declaring the gospel of Jesus Christ. We'll talk a little bit about what that means to declare the gospel, but let me just make sure that we're all on the same page here, that gospel, in order to be a gospel-driven church, we must declare the gospel. Of course, that begins with the pulpit. That begins with the preaching on Sunday mornings. But it cannot end there. It just cannot end there. In fact, gospel-driven preaching should equip And compel each and every member to live gospel-driven lives. That is one of my responsibilities and one of my goals is to equip and compel you to be a gospel-driven person. To see your life as an opportunity to carry on the ministry that Jesus began uh, uh, 2,000 years ago when he came to seek and to save the lost. In other words, that's our mission too. That's why we're here. Why do you exist? Well, one reason for sure is that through you, God wants to seek and to save the lost. Our text under this point is Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. The Apostle Paul says in these two verses, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. The first thing Paul says is that he is not ashamed of the gospel. You see, the gospel 2,000 years ago when, Paul, when the Apostle Paul wrote these words was as unpopular then as it is now among many people. I mean, the gospel has always been welcomed by a percentage of the population, but has always been resisted and fought against by an even greater percentage of the population. And so it was in Paul's time. It was very unpopular in the first century to repeat the things that Jesus had taught about salvation. Namely, that there's only one way to get there. And that that way was through a man whom they knew and saw with their own eyes, who claimed to be the Son of God. This was not well received by everybody. But Paul says, I'm not ashamed of this message, and nor should we be. God will never be gospel-driven people if we're ashamed of the gospel message. If we allow the world's resistance to this message, if we allow the world's resistance to the salvation that is found in Jesus Christ alone to permeate our own emotions and feelings toward the gospel, we will inevitably become ashamed. 
And we will shrink back from living gospel-driven lives. So it's important to, to latch on to Paul's words here where he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, and nor can we be ashamed of the gospel. Why is he not ashamed? He says, because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. That is a good reason to not be ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation. It is how people come to receive the forgiveness of their sins and eternal life with Jesus Christ through the gospel. It is the only power for salvation. There is no other means or way by which any man or woman will ever be, could ever be saved. Only through the gospel. But it is powerful enough. The gospel is sufficient to save all who will believe. Paul says to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and also to the Greek. He's referring to the fact that Jesus came from the Jewish people and the message first went out to the Jews and then, and then from the Jews it went to the non-Jews, here referred to as the Greeks. Everyone who believes. For anyone who believes in what Jesus Christ did on the cross, this is the power of God for salvation. It has the ability, it has the effect of saving every soul that believes. That's why Paul is not ashamed. He's not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God to save. And it can save the worst of us. And so Paul rejoices in the gospel. But it's important to know that nothing else will save. That's why he would say later on in that same book, in Romans chapter 10, this won't be on your screen, you'll just have to listen closely. He said, how then can they call on him whom they have not believed in? And how can they believe without hearing about him? And how can they hear without a preacher? And how can they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. You see, in order for the gospel to be the power of salvation, it must be heard. In order for the gospel to be heard, it must be declared. Gospel-driven churches must declare the gospel. We must speak with our mouths the gospel of Jesus Christ. Not just from the pulpit, but from each and every one of us in our daily lives looking for opportunities to declare the gospel message. How can they believe without hearing about him? You would be surprised to know how many of the people around you in your daily life either have not truly heard the gospel or have heard a distorted version of it that does not lead to salvation. I think we've fallen asleep a little bit as the church in America because we think, well, everybody's already heard the gospel and they've rejected it. What more can we do? They need to hear it again. And they need to hear it again. And they need to hear it again. In any way that God gives us the opportunity, we declare the gospel. The righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel, Paul says. He says in verse 17... 
I'm back in chapter 1. I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. That's verse 16. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed. Verse 17. The righteousness of God is revealed. What is so beautiful about the gospel? The gospel reveals to us the righteousness of God. But his righteousness comes differently than many would have expected it. What's so beautiful about the gospel is that his righteousness is revealed as mercy. It is his righteousness that causes God to vehemently oppose sin. It is his righteousness that obligates him to judge and to deal with sin. It is his righteousness that ultimately puts us at odds with him. Because he is righteous, he will not tolerate sin. Sin will not go unjudged. Sin will not go unpunished because of his righteousness. The problem that presents for you and I is that we are the source of sin in God's created world. The problem that poses for us is that it puts us at odds with the God who created us. Where his righteousness becomes beautiful is that in the gospel of Jesus Christ, he finds a way for his righteousness and his mercy to come together. Inseparable at the cross is the righteousness of God because he condemns and punishes every act of unrighteousness. Every every wrong thought and every sinful deed ever committed by any human being who ever walked the earth is punished on the cross. And why that's beautiful is because he did not carry out that punishment on us, but on a substitute, his own son. That's the beauty of the gospel, is that we don't get the punishment that God's righteousness demands we get the mercy that he desires to give. Isn't that fantastic? We were just talking about this in small group the other day. Only in Jesus Christ can God display his full righteousness and his full mercy at the same time. Only in Jesus Christ can sinful human beings like you and I receive God's love and mercy when we deserve his justice and punishment for our sins. Therefore, we're not ashamed of the gospel. Even when it's unpopular, even when it's opposed, we are not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To everyone who believes. The righteousness of God revealed. Gospel-driven churches declare the gospel. The next thing on your handout, gospel-driven churches demonstrate the gospel. This may sound familiar to many of you because this actually comes directly from um, our mission statement, which is to declare and demonstrate God's plan of redemption, which is another way of saying the gospel. We must declare the gospel and we must demonstrate the gospel. We cannot stop at simply declaring this message. We must demonstrate it. We must show it to the world that we live in. 
We must live it out. This means that we relate to the people around us in light of the gospel message. That we interact in all of our relationships in light of the gospel message. That we view the people around us in light of the gospel message. That we view them as, if they are not believers, souls that have the potential to receive forgiveness and eternal life in Jesus Christ. Therefore, we live out our lives hoping to facilitate them coming to Jesus. This is what it means to demonstrate the gospel. That we, just like our Savior, are here to seek and to save the lost. With our words and with our actions. There's a popular quote uh, that, that goes, it's, it's dated back several hundred years ago. That says, preach the gospel at all times and if necessary, use words. I enjoy the sentiment of that, that it points us to the fact that we should preach the gospel and how we live our lives. The, the thing that, that causes me a, a, a little bit of, uh, of I, I just want, I'm not sure it's complete, it is almost always necessary to use words in declaring the gospel. We should not separate the two, but the point is well made that so often we can be guilty of telling people the gospel as, as a, the church as a whole now. We can be guilty of having a lot to say and not doing a lot to support it. The church has retreated in our culture and formed these social clubs that we now refer to as churches where we gather together as people with like-minded views and do things that we enjoy together. And meanwhile, we keep lobbying our verbal declarations of the gospel at the world around us. What we need to do is tear down the walls of the church and be out in the world that God has placed us in, demonstrating this gospel message. This is what Jesus did. He did not just send the message, but the messenger himself came to demonstrate the gospel. He lived out his life as a proclamation of the gospel. He came to seek and to save the lost. And he did it not just with words, but with actions and deeds. There's a very convicting passage in Matthew chapter 25. Where Jesus himself talks about what it will be like on the day of judgment. When all men and women stand before him to give an account for their lives. He says in Matthew chapter 25, verse 31 through 46, Jesus said, When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate them one from another, just as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you took me in. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you took care of me. I was in prison and you visited me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord... 
When did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and take you in or without clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer truly, I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these, my brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Then he will also say to those on the left, depart from me, you who are cursed, and to the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you didn't take me in. I was naked, and you didn't clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you didn't take care of me. Then they too will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry, or thirsty, or a stranger, or without clothes, or sick, or in prison, and not help you? Then he will answer them, truly I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. And they will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Now let me just say there are some who have taken this passage and isolated it from the rest of Scripture and presented a gospel that salvation is based on works, that salvation is based on doing good deeds. And, and surely if you look at nothing more than this passage of Scripture, I can see where you would get that idea. But we don't, we don't read any passage of Scripture isolated like that. We understand in the context of the Bible that righteousness is not earned by doing good deeds like this. Rather, the point is that Jesus envisions followers of his wherein which their faith is not separated from their works. He envisions the type of followers who, if they express faith in what he did, will demonstrate that faith by what they do with their lives. He goes as far as to give the impression that those who do not do such deeds, who do not act on their faith, perhaps don't have saving faith at all. This is the picture that Jesus presents of his people. They will be people who act. They will be people who demonstrate the gospel. They will not be people of words only, but of deeds and of action and I think it's encouraging, even though the history of the church over the last 2,000 years has a lot of different stuff in it, it's encouraging to see that, generally speaking, wherever Christians have gone, mercy and compassion and acts of kindness and good deeds have followed them. Christians historically have, have been infamous for, for founding hospitals and for caring for orphans and reaching out to the poor. And that must not change with our generation. And it must not change on our watch. We as the church must be people of action. We must be people who put into practice the gospel that we preach. That if Jesus came to seek and to save the lost, that he intends to do it through us. James 2, James echoes this sentiment. He says in verses 14 through 17, What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but does not have works? Can such faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothes and lacks daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, stay warm, and be well fed, but you didn't give them what the body needs, what good is it? In the same way, if it, faith is, if it doesn't have works, 
is dead by itself. And so we say, we as a church, when when we talk about being gospel-driven, what we want to do is we want to declare the gospel. We want to be people who make clear with our words, spoken or written or any other means, we want to make clear with our words what the gospel message is. But we want to be equally passionate about living it out and demonstrating it within our community and within the world that we live in. We don't want to be known as people who just speak the gospel but do nothing to help those around us. That is not what it means to be a gospel-driven church. We want our actions to back up the words that we speak. And so from the beginning, starting when, when we began this past calendar year, we've, we've made attempts to constantly go out into our community and to serve and to look for ways to serve. We've actually built this into our small group ministry. Everyone who's in a small group, our small groups run for about 10 weeks and we do, we do three quarters and then we take the summer quarter off. And so right now we're in our winter quarter, we'll run for about 10 weeks and then we'll take a two-week break uh, which I think is going to fall right around Easter. And then we'll take uh, 10 more weeks together, small groups. Each one of those quarters that we meet, I've asked our small group leaders to plan an outreach with their small group. Where we do just this. Where we go out and in some way demonstrate the gospel in our community. And so we've built that into our structure. We've built that into how we operate. That means at, at bare minimum, right now we have three groups Uh, At bare minimum, there will be three of these types of outreaches in the next few weeks. We'll be out in the community. That's what we, that's, and and we do other things that aren't done through small groups that we do try to do collectively. Um, But it's, it's my goal to do as much of that as organically as we can through our small groups and to have a variety of expressions of outreach and not just the things, the ideas that I come up with, but, but drawing on the opportunities that all of you see. And so we've, we've built that in and, and we make that a part of it. But that's what we do kind of, that, that's sort of planned. And, and, and um, it, it's group effort. But what we really want is for every one of us every day to live as missionaries in our own community. To be serious about living lives that are gospel driven. And so that you don't wait for some planned outreach among your group, but that you wake up every day looking for those opportunities to declare and to demonstrate the gospel. To declare and to demonstrate the gospel to the people that God has placed in your life. Okay, so gospel-driven churches declare the gospel. Gospel-driven churches demonstrate the gospel. Gospel-driven churches, the third and next thing you see on your handout, gospel-driven churches operate with a sense of, of urgency. They operate with a sense of urgency. When, when we say they operate with a sense of urgency, and we're, we're going to look at Matthew 9 in just a second here, but before, before I get to that, let me explain this a little bit. What we want to do is to live in light of the reality That life here on earth is brief. That life here on earth ends in death. And that you and I get one shot at making an impact for the kingdom. 
that you and I have just a, a few short years. I, it, I, just, I just did a funeral the other day, and at every funeral, I, I try to point out, in, in addition to, uh, you may not want me, you may not want to ask me to do your funeral after you hear this, but in addition to seeking to comfort those who are grieving, I think it would, it would be amiss to, to not take that opportunity for all of us who are in attendance there to stop and think about our own mortality. And so I try to quickly and briefly point out the fact life here on earth is brief. Like a vapor, the Bible says. Like a mist. Like a fog in the morning when you wake up and as the sun comes up, it just disappears. Life here on earth is brief. Even if, it, if you're talking 80, 90 years, when you get to it, and when you get to the end of those 80, 90 years, it still seems like too little. It does not seem like enough. And in, in light of eternity, what is even a hundred years here on earth? For all of us, life here on earth is brief and it ends death. And then we'll stand before God and give an account for what we've done for our lives. And if we're kingdom people, if we are believers in Christ, we ought to live gospel-driven lives that operate with a sense of urgency. And so we want to do that as a church we want to have about us a sense of urgency that we can't wait for someone else to do it another time. We have this mentality, if not us, who? If not, where, if not here, where? And if not now, when? We have a mission to complete, and it is an urgent mission. Because all around us are people whose lives here on earth are coming to a decisive end after which there will be no more opportunity for the gospel. That should give us urgency. That should give us passion and conviction to do this and to do it now and to not wait. Matthew 9, 35 through 38, Jesus continued going around to all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and every sickness. When he saw the crowds, he felt compassion for them. Because they were distressed and dejected like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is abundant, but the workers are few. Therefore, pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. The harvest is abundant. The workers are too few. That means that we need to be Willing to be sent by the Lord of the harvest into the harvest. To become workers in his field. To live gospel-driven lives. We cannot simply hope that somebody else will do it. Because they will not. Human history has never worked that way. The only time there has been an advancing of the kingdom of God is when ordinary believers, just like you and I, have stood up and said, Here I am, Lord. Send me. Make my life count for the kingdom. Help me to live a gospel-driven life. And here's the reality, and you'll see this on your handout. The reason we have such a sense of urgency about this is because real people will spend a real eternity in a real heaven or a real hell.
Real people will spend a real eternity in a real heaven or a real hell. That much the Bible makes clear. Jesus spoke more vividly about hell than anyone else in the Bible. And I think he probably ought to know a little bit about it. Even in that passage that I read earlier from Matthew 25, where he speaks of people that will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. There's really only one of two places that every person around you is going to end up. Real people will spend a real eternity in a real heaven or a real hell. Therefore, we want to be gospel-driven. We want to be about seeking and saving the lost. And so the last thing you see on your handout, this is actually the statement of this core value as we have it in our documents. Gospel-driven, this is the second of our four core values. When we say our mission is to declare and demonstrate God's plan of redemption, the gospel, we mean that our aim is always the salvation of those who are apart from Christ. We declare this plan of God's by clearly articulating the gospel through all means available. And we demonstrate this plan by compassionately pursuing people with the love God has placed in our hearts. That's what we mean by gospel driven. That's what we want to do as a church. And that's what I'm calling you to join us in. To live gospel driven lives that reflect that, that value not only for us as a church, but for us as individual believers, that we are gospel-driven people, that our aim is always the salvation of those who are apart from Christ. This is not a social club for saints. It's a rescue mission for the lost. We exist to seek and to save the lost. We'll do that by declaring and demonstrating the gospel, and we'll do it with urgency. Will you join us? Will you give your life to seek and to save the lost? Will you live a life that is gospel-driven? Will you order your time? Will you plan your finances Will you use the gifts and talents, your, your energy, to live a gospel-driven life? I am so encouraged by the number of people that I see doing that every single week as a part of Redemption Church. But if you haven't yet joined in, we want you to. Because we believe the more of us doing this, the stronger our witness will be and the more effective we will be at seeking and saving the lost. This is why we're gospel driven. It's, it's how Jesus lived his life here on earth. It's what he has called us to. So let me give you, uh, let me give you something real practical that I want to encourage you to do. Something I've been doing for the last several years that I was introduced to uh, through a ministry called Dare to Share. And it's not that this idea is at all original to them, but I feel like they've, they've uh, put it together in, in a way that, that I can grasp it really well and that works for me. Um, what I want to encourage you to do is identify three people in your life who are not believers in Christ. And then I want you to follow a very simple pattern. There are three things that I want you to do in regards to those three people. 
pray for them, care for them, and then when the time and opportunity presents itself, share the gospel with them. Now, you might be like, well, I don't know how to share the gospel. We can help you with that. Um, But there are lots of ways to share the gospel. And if nothing else, if if you're just totally lost on how to share the gospel with somebody, if nothing else, invite them to church where we promise they will hear the gospel, where we will make every attempt to articulate for them clearly the gospel message as best as we can through the songs that we sing and through the sermons that we preach we are a gospel declaring church and so you can bring them here if nothing else but identify three people and then do three things pray for them care for them and when the opportunity presents itself share the gospel with them will you take that challenge will you commit to by the end of the day today writing down the names of three people This is what I do. I've been following this for the last several years. I try to focus on three people. There's no magic in the number three, and you can make the list longer if you want. But I try to focus on three people because I want to be intentional about reaching out to them, building a stronger relationship with them, caring for them, being available to them, and then as opportunities arise, sharing the gospel with them. We call it prayer, care, share. Pick three people and Pray for them, care for them, share the gospel with them. I want to ask the worship team to come up and get ready to lead us in worship again. As they do that, let's just go ahead and bow our heads. And before we even begin praying, I, I just, well, I want to pray. I want to ask, Jesus, I want to ask you to lay on each of our hearts three people that in, in, in 2020... You want us to be intentional about praying for them regularly, caring for them, and trying to demonstrate for them the gospel message, and ultimately sharing with them the gospel so that they will have the opportunity this year to put their faith in you and to receive eternal life. Jesus, make clear to us who those three people in our lives are whether they be co-workers or neighbors or family members. God, I just pray that you'd speak to each heart. Put a burden on our hearts for at least three people this year. And God, as those names are coming to mind, as those people are coming to mind, I want to lift them up collectively. God, I want to pray for the people that you are speaking into our minds and hearts right now. God, each person in here has relationships in which they love the person, but they know that person has not responded to the gospel. And God, those people matter to us, but more importantly, they matter to you. You created them. You created them to be with you, not to be separated by their sins. And in spite of their sins and in spite of of their rejection of you, you sent your son Jesus Christ to pay the price, to pay the full penalty for their sins. And Jesus died on their behalf, but he didn't remain there. On the third day, as we sung earlier, he rose from the grave, conquering sin and death. And your word makes clear that all who believe in you, all who believe that Jesus did that for them, receives the forgiveness of their sins and eternal life. 
God, I pray that 2020 would be the year that these folks that we're thinking of now would become our brothers and sisters in Christ through the gospel. Father, help us to live gospel-driven lives and help us to be a gospel-driven church. Help us not to become consumed with all of the the other distractions that the world presents, but help us to be focused on making our lives count for eternity. Just one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. God, may those words propel us through 2020 to live for you. In Jesus' name.